Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. She met him in the court of Bavaria Where she took a bunch of money And she pissed off all the ultramontanes La 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 lola Ludwig and the lola Do 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 Yeah, getting a little kinky here, no pun intended And this lola that we'll be talking about is a little different than Ones you might find in transvestite drag clubs in old Soho. And despite that difference, the fundamental theme is still the same. And people probably heard the expression libido dominandi, especially if they followed any of E. Michael Jones's work. And that really is the underlying issue here with the story of Ludwig and Lola or Ludwig I, Catholic King of Bavaria, and Lola Montez, perhaps a potential Freemasonic British agent, who knows. But despite this story being relatively unknown in the present day, I think that it's perhaps merited to resurrect it, so to speak, because it's something that still applies to today in both the microcosm and macrocosm. And there will be reoccurring themes that have been coming up over and over again throughout this year's episodes of the podcast. Jesuits versus Freemasons, and conspiracies involving both, and infiltration of the Catholic Church, or trying to weaken it or subdue it, or on the flip side, strengthen it and keep it more like the old world. But of course, that would be reactionary and ignorance or darkness or all the enlightenment buzz terms you can throw at it and so this is going to be reflected here in the 19th century but again you can apply all the same themes to today just with a different set of clothes on the same essential bodies but of course those bodies develop scars over time and many people often don't think they're the same thing but i would suggest that they certainly are but nonetheless, in this relativistic society, we'll let you decide yourself just what to think about Mr. Ludwig of Bavaria and Miss Lola Montez. Was it a story of love or lust? Welcome to P2BP, episode number 33. And I know that number tends to conjure up images of conspiratorial themes and this episode will have some of those but they won't be as overt as some might hope for such an esoteric number cropping up but nonetheless we will have themes of freemasonic manipulation infiltration and jesuit conspiracy theories whether they be legit or not they are all going to be interwoven into this very strange and interesting story of the King of Bavaria Ludwig I and the Lola Montez affair. Now, this is something that's probably not very well known. I had never heard of it, and I came across it doing some research for one of the series on the Rockstar Esoterica member section. And it's specifically the Pike Templar series because I think it's very interesting in what it demonstrates on both a microcosmic and macrocosmic level. So the story is essentially a cautionary tale of what E. Michael Jones often talks about as libido dominandi, but really that is a phrase going back, as far as I understand, to St. Augustine where the idea is that a man has as many masters as he has vices. And so sexual lust being the perhaps ultimate tool of control and power manipulation. And we will certainly see it here in this story. Now there's aspects of this that remind me of the JFK Marilyn Monroe 
affair, quote unquote, a lot of speculation around that, but nonetheless, in some of the esoteric analysis that we've done on the Schism 206 channel in the past, on the JFK presidency and all the weird Kabbalistic occultism that you can find embedded into the presidency itself, the assassination event in particular, and then leading up to the moon landing, so-called, and all having to do with the transmutation of the king and a sexual temptress being involved in that transmutation and playing off of the lust or the lion-beast nature of the king to transmute him into something else. And we know that the alchemical process, as far as the hermetic occultism go and Freemasonry and all those sorts of fancy names for these esoteric societies, we know their alchemical process is to transmute the lead of the old world Christian empire into a spiritual gold of their choosing in their image. Now, whether that's spiritual gold in reality or whether other people believe that to be spiritual gold, even if they reject the Catholic worldview or Christendom, you know, that is obviously the thing that's up for debate. Nonetheless, all of that was built in to the surrounding symbolism of the event. And we talked about the Lilith archetype being this harlot or whore that is a trap for the king and has a lot to do with the planet Venus and a lot of weird stuff going on that we don't have time to get into because it's all this deep occultism. And frankly, I'm done that rabbit hole uh, other than bringing it up here and there when it's applicable. And in this situation, it certainly is where we have a Catholic king in actual name being tempted by a Lilith-type figure, but instead of being a Lilith, it's a Lola. And you see this weird sort of play on Lola, Lolita, Lilith, whatever. There's some sort of weird arrangement of the letters I and L or O and L that are kind of brought into this archetype. I don't know how to explain it, but it seems to be there on some level, even if in a more broad sense. But if you think of movies like Stanley Kubrick's Lolita, which I never bothered to watch, I don't think I really care to. But that theme is basically about this obsession with a young girl. And that's basically the essence of this story here. In a broad sense, of course, there's not this underage adolescence aspect to it like the movie, as far as I understand, which is pretty screwed up. But setting that aside, the whole point is sexual lust as a tool of control and manipulation and that obsession can lead to a lot of very bad things but whilst in such delusions do you say things to yourself to justify this or that and then project things onto a scapegoat and try to make yourself seem like the virtuous one in the process so that will also be a major theme, the idea of a narcissistic projection. And you will find that in spades with both Ludwig and also his Lolita, as he calls her, and how she manipulates the situation. So it's one of those stories where you will laugh and you will cry and you will constantly be face palming saying, Ludwig, Mr. Ludwig, Catholic King, please grow some balls, sir. And this might have a more broad relevance to today with a great push to effeminize men. And we can see the results here in this story. And we can see it also on a broad scale in society. And maybe it's a cautionary tale to try to not let that happen. Or if it has, to admit that it just doesn't really work and bad things happen. And maybe we got to rethink it. So I guess those would be the items on the menu of the food for thought. So simply put, for the dudes out there, this is probably going to apply to everyone, whether it's your own friends, you've seen it happen to them, or your own personal life. And I'm no exception to this, but luckily I learned from my mistakes in uh, allowing women to take advantage of you more quickly than other people did so i can thank god for that but unfortunately you see these things still going on with many other people that you notice that are your friends and it's very frustrating to watch 
But nonetheless, it's a cautionary tale to try to not let this happen to you or uh, your your homeboy. <laughs> Leave it at that. And from the ladies' perspective, don't do this to men. It's just going to be an ugly, awful mess. And there's accountability on both sides. It's a two-way street. So we're not going to pit the sexes against each other. There's an accountability on both ends, but with a more unique expression that is more predisposed towards one sex or the other. Generally speaking, always exceptions. So with that little gender disclaimer aside, despite the PC triggering potential of it, even if you are saying it within a well-balanced opinion of reason and logic and understanding, it will obviously still go over the heads of many people we're just looking for a reason to get triggered. That's what they live on. That's what they thrive on. So we're not even going to worry about them. So let's give a little bit of the historical backdrop. We are in the mid-19th century in Europe. This is all going on around the mid-1840s up until the revolutions of 1848. That's roughly the time period we're considering. And Mr. Ludwig I of Bavaria was born in 1786. So when he was around three years old, we had the French Revolution going down, and he died in 1868. So he hung in there for a decent amount of time, and he reigned in Bavaria as king from 1825 until, surprise, surprise, 1848, when the revolution deposed him. Now, this deposing, I think, is more of an abdication by choice, but at the same time, it was kind of forced because they were imposing all these restrictions and regulations, and Mr. Ludwig didn't really like that very much, so he stepped down. I believe that's the context. That's not even really as relevant to the story, so we're not going to worry about that. If I'm wrong on that, then so be it. Now, Miss Lola Montez is quite a bit younger. She was born in 1821, and so thus Ludwig became king just a few years after she was born. And she didn't live too, too long. She died in 1861, so she lived to be about 40 years old. And there is perhaps a cautionary tale to how she died and her lifestyle that we will talk about at the very end. And we could probably give a little nickname or epithet for her as perhaps the scourge of Bavaria, especially for Catholics in Bavaria. And perhaps very relevant to today, some people during this time claim that she was a very devout Catholic. She was truly Catholic. But really, she's just much more like a Nancy Pelosi Catholic or a Joe Biden one where they say they're Catholic, they say they're about philanthropy or being on the side of good and some sense of virtue and honor and whatever, but their actions perhaps dictate a very different story. But if they're good at playing the scapegoat game and blaming everything on another party for all of the problems that they either created or at least had a hand in, well, that's also probably very relevant to today as well. So, nothing new under the sun, as usual. And the last thing before we get into the story here, we've heard the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words, and if you look up some old newspaper clippings and cartoons of Lola Montez from the newspapers of the Times, you get a very accurate portrayal, I would say. And I'll try to leave up some links for this. I have the pictures in the series, but there's one where the... Greek god Pan, who is a god of lust, who we know is very much involved in all the weird symbolism around the JFK assassination. But nonetheless, there's a little cartoon of him crowning her because she is the one invoking all of this lust in Mr. Ludwig, and she's got sort of like a whip, and then she's grabbing some arrows from a Mr. Cupid. So it's interesting they're using all of this Greek god imagery or Roman... Uh, counterpart imagery uh, to demonstrate this. And then we have Miss Lola Montez in another cartoon, Sailing for America, and on the European land are all of these noble people crying that their little Lolita, because she was kind of getting around, was leaving them. 
And she's saying, sorry, I got to go to America where I got more freedom. And there's a little Cupid on the boat shooting back arrows at them. So she's got a bunch of whipped dudes on the shore, to put it in modern terms, in bro terms. And there's another cartoon that I thought stood out where we have (laughs) Miss Lola wearing a crown, even though she's not royalty. She will pretend to be royalty, which is a pattern we've noticed many times with a lot of the stuff we discussed like some of the Nazi LARPers and things we discussed in the French Revolution with Barwell's memoirs. But setting that aside, we have a picture of her wearing a crown looking very tyrannical, and she's got little Ludwig on a leash, and he's basically caricatured as a little dog with a little Ludwig face and a mini crown. And essentially, he's like her little toy. He's her little pet toy. So I highly encourage you to check out the links in the description Look at those pictures. They will probably help give you a visual aid to really engage in this story, in this drama, in a much more profound way. And as we'll see, Lola is very much about the drama, so we can at least honor her in that sense, even if we're going to call her the scourge of Bavaria in another. So let's get to the source reading that we will be drawing from here. One is a book by Mr. Turtle Bunbury. It's a pretty sweet name. The book is 1847, A Chronicle of Genius, Generosity, and Savagery. Doesn't really sound like it would have much to do with Lola Montez, but nonetheless, there's some very interesting revelations from this book. And if you want to see those revelations firsthand, just do a Google Books keyword search For this particular book of Jesuit, Lola, and Ludwig, and you will see all of the source reading that I am drawing from for that particular book. Another book that is much more extensive, and the other one we will be examining, is a book that you can actually rent or borrow on archive.org for free, if you just have an account. And it's called Lola Montez by Bruce Seymour. That one is much more extensive and more interesting. And we will more elaborately source from that, probably more in the second hour. But we'll get to some of it in this first hour. And the last option, if you want to get much more specific about what I'm drawing from, you can sign up for the Rockstar Esoterica member section and go to the Pike Templar series and go through the multiple videos on this era of history that relates to all of the odd Jesuit conspiracy theory accusations that were floating around during the 19th century from all of these New World Order factions that don't even like each other, but yet, somehow, miraculously, divinely, if you will, they all seem to spew out the same propaganda buzz terms against the Jesuits of the time, and the term ultramontane will be one of them. And as far as I understand, ultramontane is essentially a term for the time where France was obviously post-revolution and in this huge anti-clerical fervor that had various waxing and waning battles of Catholic power going on. And this movement was to go over the mountains, over the Alps, to Rome, and look to the papal authority because the popes, generally speaking, of the 19th century were to the liberals backwards, ignorant, reactionary, and all those typical SJW buzz terms that they throw on the boogeyman they don't like of any given moment, or from the Catholic perspective, maybe just more sticking with the traditional Catholicism and warning everybody that if they depart from it, bad things will happen, and perhaps we see the fruits of that today, but back during this time... Uh, Well, maybe it was more obvious during certain eras than others, but nonetheless, everyone was still drinking the liberal Kool-Aid, and that happened for, you know, a good century and a half longer. So, that's also part of the backdrop. Now, I'm not trying to say the Ultramontane party was perfect or something like that. I'd actually have to do a little bit more research on it, but I have done enough to know that there was crazy propaganda against it, And these ultramontanes were very much against quote-unquote modernism. In other words, Freemasonry infiltrating into the church. And was trying to dogmatize uh, Pius IX's syllabus of errors later on with the whole Vatican I stuff. And that's a whole other complex topic that 
We might get into at some point, especially when we talk about transatlantic anti-Catholicism, and I still need to do a bit more research on it. But nonetheless, those are the factors at play in a broad scope. And I have to apologize once again that I need to turn on my air conditioning because the room is getting very hot and my computers are overheating, so you might hear a slight buzz in the background. Sorry. Alright, now that it's cooled down a little bit, back to the story. I think since it's just such a hot, steamy, romantic tale that that's not really helping the situation either. Anyways, let's begin. The Lola and Ludwig story. So, who was Ludwig I, King of Bavaria, really? Well, he was a Catholic ruler, in name at least, who apparently had a very dull sex life, according to this book, the Chronicle of Genius, once he and his queen reached a certain age. The spark was just gone. So, then enters Miss Lola Montez, right on cue. And she apparently was an Irish dancer with supposed Spanish influence or backgrounds. It's kind of murky. There's probably a lot of deception around the whole thing, but at least it's known she was from Ireland. And she was known for her erotic strip teases and seducing European nobles, especially into them advocating policies of more liberal reforms or Masonic ideas, and apparently died of syphilis. So there's your cautionary tale. Now, dying of syphilis is debated. It's understood that she had it, but she might not have died of that, but it also probably didn't help her immune system in fighting off whatever she was sick with, so there is some debate around it, but it seems that it played a factor regardless, as far as I could tell. And the unifying factor is that she was Ludwig of Bavaria's downfall, and you will see numerous times how he was given all these opportunities to see that she was just using him and a complete fraud, but he was blinded by the light, the Luciferian light, so to speak. And before Mr. Ludwig, she tried to seduce the German composer Richard Wagner, but to no avail, and apparently he called her a, quote, heartless demonic being. Now, it's probably worth noting that Mr. Wagner was joining in in the polemics against the Ultramontanes, which the Jesuits were ultimately associated with at that time. And again, these types of Jesuits are almost the exact opposite of the ones that people would be accustomed to today, especially the Father James Martins of the world. And despite an inversion also of the idea of papal infallibility as being tied to the Ultramontane party, the way that was being implemented or trying to be implemented was to be against modernism and now it's the reverse everybody's trying to claim papal infallibility because the pope is super liberal and really part of the nwo agenda and this is something we've seen where there's an institution that is very vehemently or fanatically as many people might say fighting for the traditional model of the catholic church and its relationship to society and then later on, there's a complete inversion of that. And we've talked about that a number of times in occult Catholicism and the plot against the church, talking about the agenda to turn what was good for the church into the exact opposite through infiltration. That's the name of the game and what we've been over many times in the Freemasonic doctrines themselves admitting this, such as Albert Pike's 30th chapter on the Templars, which perhaps is another group that succumbed to that same fate. So, more on that is in the Pike Templar series in the members section, along with this whole Ludwig and Lola story. But back to Mr. Wagner, he was part of this whole Kulturkampf, which was an extreme propaganda campaign against those types of Catholics or the Jesuits of the time. And of course, yet another example of the Protestant Masonic alliance against the church and those old school Jesuits that you see transcending nations and nationalities into a universal propaganda campaign. And when we get to the book analysis of transatlantic anti-Catholicism, we'll see that connection of the Masonic factions and the Protestant factions in France and America doing pretty much the exact same thing as happening in Germany here with the Kulturkampf, 
And this will also apply later on when we talk about Lola coming to America. And as far as I understand, the Nazi propagandists were using people like Wagner because there's an anti-Catholic church, anti-Jesuit sentiment that was very dominant in the Nazis, as we've talked about in the noble, savage, LARPing episode on the Nazis, but also an anti-Semitism. And so here we have Wagner's frequent allusions to the sinister doings of the Jesuits that were also belonging to this particular set of ideas. And if we go to Richard Wagner's Beethoven, 1870, by Richard Wagner, on page 91, he explains some of this, where he says, Thus, for the sensitive observer, the same Jesuitical style of construction of the preceding two centuries obscures the venerable nobility of Rome. Thus, the glories of Italian painting became soft and sweet. Thus, under the same guidance, classical French poetry arose in those whose stultifying laws we can detect a quite telling analogy with the laws governing the construction of the operatic area and the sonata. We know that it was, here's the important bit, the German spirit, this is the same German spirit that the Nazis are going to try to tap into later on, so very much feared and hated beyond the mountains, beyond the mountains being ultramontane, into papal Rome, and so on and so on. So here he is bashing the Jesuits, the ultramontane, stuff like that. So despite him and Lola Montes's hatred or conspiracy theories about the Jesuits and the Ultramontanes, that wasn't enough to sustain any relationship between them and wasn't enough to prevent him from calling her a heartless demonic being. And if Wagner had been alive in 1930s Germany, you can probably assume he would have been aligned with a Nazi party. This is disputed, but that's essentially what I've extracted from these controversies. So you can look more into him if you'd like. I'm certainly not an expert. So, speaking of the Ultramontanes, apparently Munich, which was the Bavarian capital, was one of Europe's most Catholic and conservative cities, largely because of the Jesuit-backed Ultramontanes, who had controlled the Bavarian parliament since 1837. So, with all of the liberalism and parliaments and constitutional monarchies being all the rage and the push for more and more democracy, that the lower-class people can have a voice. At least that's what they're being sold. Well, this is kind of working in reverse, where the Bavarian parliament is being controlled by the Jesuits. And Ludwig is a king who could invoke his absolutism if he had wanted to, but nonetheless, all of this democratic stuff, republicanism, whatever you want to call it, is kind of starting to fuse in these areas. But of course, in backward, superstitious Catholic nations, progress goes along much, much slower, as we know. But the situation with Ludwig could easily be one that if someone wanted to make the case against monarchism, he would be a great example of it. So I'm not here to dispute what would be the ideal government for people in traditional Catholic viewpoints. There's a lot of debate going on about that even now. Republic, monarchy, etc. I'm not going to make a comment on it. I think you can make arguments on either side, and ultimately, it's the fundamental driving principles and people's obedience to them that will matter. But nonetheless, setting aside that potential tangent, back to the point, this was the culture of Bavaria. This was what was representing an archetype, the Jesuit-backed Ultramontanes. And so, Mr. Ludwig was apparently raised a Catholic, but was by no means wholly compliant with the Ultramontanes. And one of their best representatives in this government was Karl von Abel, apparently their leader and the kingdom's chief minister. And he was very frustrated by Ludwig's refusal to allow the Jesuits back into Bavaria. Now, I am doing a mixture here of reading verbatim source reading from these books we've talked about, and just summarizing the points in case anyone wanted to know. But of course, we also have the issue of Ludwig's inability to stay faithful to his wife. And so when we have somebody who is having a penchant for adulterous relationships, well, I think we can also make an interesting correlation of having somebody being anti-Jesuit or anti-Ultramontane 
This is very similar to people like Louis the Fifteenth of France, who was the one who helped suppress the Jesuits despite the wishes of his family and his son who was heir to the throne but died before he could ascend. Well, ultimately that was a huge mistake and it probably got his grandson Louis XVI's head cut off. And his temptress, his Lola Montez, was a Miss Pompadour or Madame Pompadour who was an agent of Voltaire, the Duke of Choiseul, and all the things that we've covered in the memoir series especially in the anti-Christian conspiracy, so that also is in the members section. Now, obviously, this doesn't necessarily mean that anybody who is in a more adulterous relationship can't be aligned with the Jesuits, or people who are moral and sticking to the Catholic faith can't be against the Jesuits, but there is a basic pattern that tends to emerge, especially in these important situations. And apparently, there was another situation that soured him on Catholicism, where his own wife, the Queen, had a Protestant background, and also she hated the Jesuits too. She had suspicions about them. And there was a funeral for her mother, and she was not allowed to have a Catholic funeral with the ceremonial vestments and all of the bells and whistles of it because she was a Protestant. Now, it's kind of funny that his brother-in-law, William IV, who was the king of Prussia, an absolutist king, but also a Protestant king, but with Catholic sympathies. Well, it's kind of funny there's a reversal here where Ludwig, who's supposedly Catholic, is taking offense that they won't give a Catholic burial to a Protestant, whereas his Protestant brother-in-law isn't really taking offense and he's at the funeral and he's complying with it and not making a big stink about it. So the SJW nature is actually in Ludwig and he's taking offense on the behalf of Frederick William IV. So this is kind of a funky little thing that tends to happen in these areas of Germany that have that bordering battleground between Protestantism and Catholicism. Oftentimes, there's Catholics who succumb to the Protestant culture and revolt against traditional Catholicism. And then you have some Protestants who are at least sympathetic to the Catholics, and they get so much hate from their own people, be it the Protestants or the Masons. And that's pretty much King Frederick William IV in a nutshell. We've talked about some of the propaganda against him being depicted as shackled to a Jesuit and being a slave to Rome and basically being like the situation where you're being bullied on the playground because you're not cool for going and doing a bunch of bad stuff. <laughs> That's kind of the vibe I get from it. And there's more to go with that, but we won't go on a side tangent. So nonetheless, these are the factors involved. We got two major issues. Ludwig is unfaithful, or he's looking to be unfaithful to his wife. Like we mentioned, the spark is gone. And he gets upset that there is not a tolerance of Protestants and that there is religious bigotry and dogma getting in the way of all of this lovely unity and letting people do what they wilt, right? And so is this typical of today where everybody cries tolerance and let me be me, let me do what I want, but then they make things worse and worse for the people around them and when you point it out, they just call you a reactionary or a fascist or whatever. And we're gonna see that same thing going on with Mr. Ludwig. And so, once he has that general spirit, and it's been more well-defined, well, magically, enter Lola Montez. And reading, on the eve of Lola's arrival in Munich, Ludwig was becoming ever less impressed with the radical agenda of the Ultramontanes. Enter Lola. Her timing was impeccable. And so this 60-year-old king becomes infatuated, and the person introducing Lola to him was a Baron von Maltzahn, who apparently was kind of a wealthy playboy, and he was basically coasting on the fortunes of his three dead wives. So, <laughs> is that not suspicious, right? Birds of a feather, this guy is getting rich off of dead wives. I'm not saying he killed them or something like that, but he's using that money to go out and be a socialite and, I guess, be hanging out with the ladies. And so he introduces Lola Montez to the king. And later on, you're going to find a lot of the people, once you start seeing Lola's shenanigans and her influence on the king, will start to get pretty upset at Mr. Baron von Maltzahn. 
and at least he will end up feeling a little bit guilty or responsible for the situation, and he tries to rectify it in some kind of hilarious way. So as we mentioned, this is really a story of tragedy, but also comedy, and we'll get into more specific examples as we go through this. So, apparently through her influence, she received a personal audience with the king, and this famous Spanish dancer, whom <laughs> Wagner called a heartless demonic being, well, apparently within two weeks, she became his mistress, but there's a little catch. She would not sleep with him, and she kept making up all these excuses as to why she wouldn't. And so perhaps, just speculating here, maybe the situation is he's kind of an uglier old man, and she's a 22, 23, 24. They're trying to really guess her age. She's always claiming herself to be younger than she actually is. But nonetheless, in her 20s, uh, I guess attractive woman. Uh, well, she's getting a lot of money from him, as we'll see, but not giving it up. And so, <laughs> wonder why. Hmm, uh, just uh, one of those mysteries of life. But nonetheless, She's also, at the same time, enamoring many other members of court who are much younger and much more attractive than Ludwig, and we'll talk about them a little later. But despite enamoring many people with her dancing and her exotic ways, her Latin ways, like that typical black legend archetype of the Spanish people as being lustful and uncontrollable passions, things like that, ironically, the same culture that produced that propaganda, she is part of, and she's also becoming it and playing off of it in the negative stereotype. So it's kind of a funny little irony, I guess. But nonetheless, there were many in the court still who were very unenamored with her ways and her influence and became very hostile to her. And those are the Jesuitical conservative reactionaries who just are too stiff-necked and dogmatic and won't let people just foot loose, you know? They just want to get out there and dance, right? They just want that freedom. And anytime this faction would start getting upset or hostile to Miss Lola Montez, she would claim there's a big Jesuit conspiracy against her. And we've seen that pattern happen with many people, uh, such as Charles Shaniqui, the inventor of the Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by the Jesuits BS. And people like Alberto Rivera with his unbelievable tales of being in the secret Vatican catacombs and being tortured unless he reverted back to Catholicism by, I think, none less than perhaps the Pope himself. I don't remember. There's always a narcissistic fantasy where they encounter the highest levels of the evil Catholic Church and they were targeted by them. And somehow they were so important in their truth-telling that the Pope himself had to target them to torture them and try to brainwash them for dogmatic Catholicism. That seems to be a common theme. And so thus, they are the persecuted hero, and they will illuminate us all to the darkness of the Catholic Church. That's pretty much the story in a nutshell. Now again, we're not saying there's never been any dark things associated with the Catholic Church, but when they're exaggerated or invented in order to prop someone else up as a hero who's perhaps much more unscrupulous than anything they can even invent about the Catholic Church, well, that's obviously a big hypocritical problem. So, these reactionaries started questioning things like her Spanish background, because apparently she had a severe lack of skills in the Spanish language, so if you can't speak Spanish, but you're claiming you're from a noble Spanish background and you're all about the Spanish passion, but you can't speak the language, people start to ask questions, right? These are just logical inconsistencies that need to be answered with reason, which these Masonic liberal types claim they're all about. But instead, what happens is these people are accused of xenophobia. They're afraid of foreigners. They're afraid of Spanish culture. They're the ones who are the bigots, and they're not giving poor little Lola a chance, who just wants to spread the gospel of liberty to everybody. And that literally becomes the excuse for the defenders of Lola, and herself included. And of course, it's those evil Jesuits behind the scenes here with all of this xenophobia, hating foreigners, and being scared of differences. I'm not sure if that's relative today. I think it might be. We'll let you decide. So, despite this reactionary group and people in the court trying to warn the king about this, 
he's completely blinded to all of it. He thinks she's the most amazing angel, and he decides to give her full access. She's got the Wayne's World backstage pass. She can go back and hang with Alice Cooper, or in this case, go back and hang with King Ludwig anytime she wants. And it just took two weeks for him to basically give her all the benefits of a citizen of Bavaria, and even more so than most citizens. Funny how that works. And the text basically reconfirms this by saying, The Bavarians were shocked. Many were, quite rightly, skeptical of Lola's feigned Catholicism. So she's claiming to be Catholic. That's the other element that's kind of hilarious about this. And she's the true Catholics, right? The progressive ones. And that Dark Ages one, like these Ultramontane Jesuits, that was just a corruption that happened. And we had a thousand years of darkness, and people didn't realize there's this purer Christianity that the apostles had that we just got away from for a thousand years. Basically, it's the Gnostic viewpoint or the modern liberal viewpoint, the Elaine Pagels type of the day. It's just Freemasonry. Nothing really that complicated. It's the same old story. And despite Lola Montez claiming a Jesuitical conspiracy against her whenever anything goes wrong from her or the media does a hit piece on her or any of these conservatives are reacting to her influence at the court, there's also some conspiracy theories being circulated on the other side where many of these people who did not like Miss Montez, well, some of them were proposing that she had been dispatched to corrupt the king either by the Freemasons or by Lord Palmerstone, Britain's wily foreign secretary. So there's a Masonic Whig plot to corrupt the Catholic king through a sexual temptress Lilith to enter into the court. So regardless of what sent Lola Montez, whether it was Freemasonic agents, British agents, or demonic fallen angel influence, whichever path you want to go with it, none of these traditional Catholic types or ultramontanes were able to halt their monarch's infatuation with his little Lolita. So, within these two weeks, Lola gets the keys to the kingdom in both wealth and fame. The king just gives her a bunch of money to go spend. But trouble arose soon in paradise, where she soon got in a fight with the landlady of a younger Lieutenant Friedrich Neubomber. And this is an interesting story because she apparently was sleeping with this guy. And while she was at his flat or his apartment, whatever you want to call it, I guess he was gone and she was hanging out causing trouble and the landlady got pissed off. And in order to justify what she was doing, she said, I am the king's mistress. So she boldly proclaims it, even though she was actually at the apartment of a lieutenant who was not the king sleeping with him. And she actually persuaded the king to banish this new bomber from the city because apparently it was his fault because it was his landlady that was bringing these false accusations against her. But apparently she changed her mind and decided that she didn't want to get rid of this guy she was sleeping with. So this is the crazy thing. The king thinks that Lola is infatuated with him and he's the only one for her. But she's sleeping with a lieutenant at an apartment causing a scene. And when she gets caught, she claims she's the king's mistress and she tries to get the king to get rid of the guy she's sleeping with. And in a further facepalm-inducing fact, apparently Ludwig thought that since Lola changed her mind and didn't want to expel this guy she was sleeping with from the city, but of course she's not telling him she's sleeping with him. This is just the underground common knowledge. Ludwig doesn't want to believe it. But nonetheless, this persuaded Ludwig to think that Lola was a forgiving Catholic. Oh, she's so filled with mercy. She wanted to expel this guy from the city, but she changed her mind. She has a forgiving heart. What a lovely Catholic girl. That's literally his excuse. And this is just a taste of all the absurd things Mr. Ludwig will tell himself to believe that little Lolita is this perfect Catholic angel. And despite many more episodes of this, this particular one is not yet over. Because this was an incident reported to the police. And so the police chief, a Mr. Baron von Peckman, Peschman, 
not sure how to pronounce it, he had to investigate. And so once he investigated and talked to the landlady and new bombers, you know, neighbors and whatever, then Lola denied that she was ever even in that neighborhood, let alone in New Bomber's house. So now she's saying, I was never even there. And everybody who accused her of being there and causing trouble or whatever, well, apparently she called them all liars. There's a giant conspiracy against her and everybody else is lying. And, of course, as we'll see later on, the masterminds of that conspiracy will be the Jesuits, which is what she always claims. And... She was also rumored to have many other quote-unquote noble suitors, always rich dudes, with a certain amount of sway and political power. Just a coincidence, right? Now, the investigations didn't stop here. Mr. Peshman further investigated and even had an informer, and it was revealed that Lola was sleeping with other men at her own flat, the one that Ludwig is paying for, and along with this insider informer, there were several other witnesses attesting this. So she's over at New Bomber's house, she's at her own apartment having men over, sleeping with them, and she's denying all of this, but the police ran an investigation. So the police brings this all to Mr. Ludwig, and Ludwig cannot believe it. He won't believe it. The king, quote, had become so besotted with Lolita, as he called her, that he was genuinely baffled by the hostility she brewed among his loyal subjects. And he even said that if all the accusations had been true against Lola, and she contritely confessed them to Ludwig, bear in mind this is his own words, well he says that such a great passionate love would fill him that he would have forgiven all of them. So even if Lola was, because she couldn't possibly be doing this, but even if she was, if she was sleeping around with like 20 other dudes and then using the apartment that Ludwig is paying for to do so, well, if she just asked for forgiveness, he would have been like, oh, sweetheart, don't worry about it. As long as you have repentance. But the question is, would that repentance cease the same sins in the future or would it just be same old story and she's back to her old tricks and if i were a betting man i would probably say it's the latter but who knows but despite all of this ludwig decides that he's going to kick the informer and the police chief peshman out of the city of munich instead of lola so lola's the innocent one and the police chief and the informer are conspiring against her and this is what caused him to start believing there was a conspiracy amongst the Ultramontanes, again, the traditional Catholic movement that typified the Jesuits, and that they were trying to, quote, separate me from Lola, but it has merely bound me all the stronger to her. So despite all the machinations of evil Jesuits with their tricks trying to slander Miss Lola Montez and trying to hire informers and pay off police chiefs, well, this has only strengthened his love for Lola, and nothing the evil, black-hearted nature of the Jesuits can do would tear him apart from his sweet, sweet Lolita. So, after this debacle, everybody starts to turn on Baron von Maltzahn, whom, if you'll recall, introduced them in the first place. And so, Maltzahn is feeling a little bit insecure about this whole situation, so here's what he does. He goes to Lola in private and offers her a life pension of 50,000 francs a year. I'm not sure what that translates to contemporarily in American dollars, but I'm sure it's a pretty decent amount of money per year. Well, he's going to pay her this for life, just to leave Bavaria and never return. So obviously this guy had a lot of money from his three dead wives, but what happened was she reported straight to Ludwig and said that Maltzahn tried to buy her off to kick her out. And of course, this leads Mr. Ludwig to believe that Lola is loyal to him. But I would argue that perhaps the king had way more money and power and influence than Mr. Maltzahn did, and so she chose to stick with him to manipulate him. And, at the same time, she will also gain a lot more favor with him because she'll appear to be loyal. So a pretty cunning tactic, if that were indeed the motivation and the case. But nonetheless, 
the king can't even blame Maltzan for this deception and trying to pay off Lola behind his back. He actually thinks that he was influenced by one of those ultramontane Jesuitical enthusiasts that was a corrupter of his friend Maltzan. And so basically he thought it was a Karl August von Reichsack who had recently at the time been installed as Archbishop and he eventually became a Cardinal. So once again, little Lolita is an angel and the Jesuit Ultramontane regime or anybody connected to it are the evil conspirators against freedom and liberty and love. Now, we're not going to say that the Ultramontane establishment never did anything unscrupulous, but in this example of unscrupulosity coming from that faction, it's actually more comedic than anything overtly harmful or scandalous. So we'll give an example here. You can decide, but I would posit that despite not condoning what was going on here, it's actually kind of funny and a lot more harmless than any shenanigans that Lola Montez was pulling during this entire epic saga. So, after this Maltzon bribery incident, Ludwig's resilience was also tested by a Cardinal von Diepenbrock. I don't know much about him, but apparently he went to the king and told the king that the spirit of a long-dead bishop who was the king's first religious mentor visited him in a dream of sorts, or a vision he had, and apparently this is what the spirit of this dead bishop wanted to convey to Ludwig about Miss Lola. And this message from beyond the grave was, Lola is a poisonous tree who numbs you, robs your eyes of vision, intoxicates your senses, and wholly beguiles you so that you do not see the chasm before you, which swallows up your honor, your reputation, the happiness of your family, your land, of your life, and as well as the salvation of your soul. King Ludwig, awake from your dream. So, even if this cardinal made up this story about a visitation from the king's long-dead tutor or bishop of his youth, I would think that most discerning people would be able to at least admit that the message given was true, even if the source wasn't entirely accurate. Not saying that justifies it, but at least it's understandable. But in spite of this message from beyond the grave, whether real or imagined, it didn't have any effect on Ludwig, where he thanked the Cardinal and slept on in his dream, believing that Lola Montez was essentially his soulmate and their love was trumping anything that the Jesuits could throw at them. Now, there's a number of other incidents where Lola gets into legal trouble. Obviously, we explained one of them and we'll get to more in the second hour, but to wrap up this first hour, we're going to bring it to the culminating point here where she is being threatened with deportation because this is all within the legal rights of the courts of Bavaria to get rid of somebody who is breaking the law and being arrested. And she is not a legal citizen. So of course this is where they start bringing in the propaganda that everyone there is just xenophobic and hates foreigners for anyone defending her. And this is where Ludwig decides to step in and assert his male authority, his kingship, his absolute rule. Because he wasn't totally whipped by this woman and doing everything he could to basically pretend like she was an angel and not sleeping around and all that stuff. No, 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 no. It's because he's a strong male authority figure. So he's going to try to step in and preside over the next council of state and impose his will. And this is one instance where the Republican or constitutional setup was a hindrance for the Freemasons. These situations ironically tend to happen on occasion, and that's when the Masons get really mad because the Catholics are using their own system against them. One example of this is when a black Catholic slave rebels under the Freemasonic French colony after Napoleon takes over and uses the Constitution to make a confessionally Catholic state, and then, of course, Napoleon and his Masonic fanboys can't have that, and they go in and crush it, and all this bad stuff happens. That's a whole other issue that we've discussed in the Pike Templar series that, obviously, this is part of. But setting that aside, there's some interesting dynamics at play here. 
where we talked about the Masonic system being used against them. Well, here's where the Catholic system was used against them with the king and trying to impose an absolutist rule. So, like we said, it can go both ways, and there's pros and cons to each type of government from the Catholic perspective or a Masonic perspective or whatever. But, setting that aside, Ludwig is presiding over this council, or so he thinks, but no one's having it. No one is budging. Everyone's saying, King, you're crazy. You are completely lust-struck with Miss Lola, and we're not going to budge. We want to deport her. So, surprise, surprise, the lone Protestant on the council works with Ludwig to try to bypass this, a Mr. George von Maurer, Maurer. He was a legal shark, a lawyer. And he decided they were going to concoct a scheme to try to grant Lola legal citizenship of Bavaria before they were able to hold a trial or impose a verdict or whatever. So, if she was a legal citizen, then she could stay in Bavaria despite being arrested and disturbing the peace. Now, for all those people saying the Catholics don't tolerate Protestants and they're just so mean to not do that, well, here's an example where if they left a Protestant off their council and didn't tolerate that, well, Lola would never be able to become a legal citizen, they would have kicked her out, and the Freemasons would have lost. So, that understanding or that plea does have actual historical consequences, despite the feelings of people wanting all these things to be ecumenically equal. And so, even so, the problem was nobody was willing to give naturalization to the unspeakable female who had contaminated the king's mind and made Bavaria the laughingstock of Europe. And apparently, Ludwig tried to force the ultramontane leader, Karl von Abel, to sign her naturalization. And he basically rebelled and they threatened the resignation of the entire government of Bavaria. And Ludwig apparently happily accepted this, and he viewed it as a triumph over the Jesuitical ultramontane regime and the, quote, conservative Catholic policies that had dominated his realm for a decade. And so he appointed an all-new cabinet called the Ministry of the Dawn. It's the dawn of a new day. But of course, every reaction has a counter-reaction. And after he fires the whole conservative cabinet and appoints a new one, there were senior figures at the University of Munich who were really upset at the king and thought that Mr. Von Abel was a hero and they offered him a formal expression of their high regard for his sacrifice to maintain his dignity in the entire court, which would not comply with the king's ridiculous demands to try to keep Lola in Bavaria so she could basically destroy everything around him and siphon off the king's money and get him to promote liberal Masonic policies. Now the king saw this as a blatant disloyalty, so he starts purging the university staff. He's firing all these conservatives in the university, including a much-admired professor of philosophy, a Mr. Ernst von Lassalks. I'm sure I butchered that name, but whatever. You get the point. So this caused an angry reaction and a mob that marched to Lola's apartment, and Ludwig swoops in to rescue Lola from this angry mob. Now, in the context of the times, this was actually, ironically, a chivalrous action for all the wrong reasons, because there was a lot of regicide going on in Europe, a lot of kings being killed during this time by angry mobs, but usually it's by Masonic mobs killing the conservative Catholic kings, who are tied to that ultramontane faction or archetype. But here, it's the opposite. But, perhaps since it's a more conservative mob, they're not going to murder the king, they're just going to be angry about it, and Ludwig survived. And so, of course, Ludwig blames this uprising, this march on Lola Montez's apartment that she's screwing a bunch of dudes at that the king is paying for, but trying to pretend like isn't happening. Well, he blames it all on the Jesuits, whom Lola also blames it on, so she is whispering in the king's ear saying that the Jesuits are behind all of this. They hate me. They hate our love. But think about the dialectic here. He has a queen that's from a Protestant background who hates the Jesuits too. So whether he goes with the Masonic Lola or the Protestant or Philo-Protestant queen, they both hate the Jesuits. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Even though the Jesuits would tell Ludwig to keep it in his pants and get rid of Lola and stick with the queen, 
Well, it's kind of funny that this queen still doesn't like the Jesuits, so... A lot of contradictions and ironies, and if people actually perhaps listen to the Catholic teaching and the ultramontane Jesuitical regime, a lot of these problems might not have happened. But we can only speculate. So in wrapping up this hour and these extractions from this first book, it also must be balanced out that Ludwig was repulsed by Lola's reactions to the crowd's rage because apparently when the crowd was protesting her, she was giving a lot of obscene gestures and speaking with a lot of profanity, and that doesn't really help your Catholic image, even if it's just a facade, when you're overtly, you know, I guess grabbing your crotch or doing whatever you would be doing to stick it to the man and these crowds who were supposedly masterminded or manipulated by the Jesuits to attack her. So, after this obscene public outburst, supposedly Ludwig was done with her. That's it. She's cancer. Even if the Jesuits are conspiring, she's still not good in my life. But it didn't take very long for Lola to convince him otherwise, and she struck back by visiting him more frequently. So instead of going off and screwing a bunch of other guys like she usually does, she decided to spend more time with Ludwig. But still, they hadn't slept together, and Lola refused on the grounds of well, I'm not feeling so good, and, you know, I don't want to become pregnant. Now, not to promote immorality, but in the context of the situation, if Mr. Ludwig, you're not even getting any, and you're still putting up with all this crap, that's even more pathetic. Again, not condoning either situation, but in context of his own personal desires, that's even more of a facepalm. And despite Lola being back in his life, there were some restrictions that they tried to put on her by capping her income as she was spending lavish amounts of money on her house, including, get this, a crystal staircase, gilded bronze knobs on every door, and the first large plate glass windows in Munich. But apparently, when they just capped her income, they didn't stop giving her income, they just put more of a limit on it, she threw a hissy fit tantrum and she punched the glass cabinet that cost thousands of dollars in her rage. And then when the press began to cast doubt or more doubt on her Hispanic authenticity, now it's going to the papers rather than just behind the scenes rumors that, hey, maybe this lady isn't even Spanish because she can't even speak the language. Well, then she decided to fight back. She defiantly wrote to each paper in Bavaria insisting that she was born at Seville in Spain. I know you pronounce Seville totally differently in Spanish, but I'm not even going to try. And that her father was of nobility. And so to cap off the end of this first hour with a climax, no pun intended, not trying to get overly kinky in this episode, but couldn't help myself. With the Ultramontanes at bay and Lola at Ludwig's side, Mr. Ludwig felt in control, like a strong, masculine, assertive man, and they finally made love. But as much as a monumental achievement that was for Mr. Ludwig from a personal subjective standpoint, this dreamlike fantasy was not going to last and would turn into a nightmare. Soon after, Lola began straying again, sleeping around, going on his own dime on trips to Switzerland, hanging out with playboys, getting villas, and when those villas weren't good enough for her, she had to redo them and live in hotels or apartments while it was being redone. All kinds of crazy stuff that we'll get into in the second hour, along with a portrait calamity, which involved a lapdog chasing a bunch of swans down the street with Lola in a Renaissance costume running behind with a world-famous painter and the King of Bavaria in full sprint mode chasing her down, not too far from behind. Well, there's another one of the more comedic episodes of this, but nonetheless, it all culminates with the revolution coming to swallow Mr. Ludwig up in its fury, and he has to abdicate in 1848. But that doesn't mean that his relationship with Lola is over. Far from it. And then, eventually, she'll leave to America, where she can become a pioneer in the theater industry, and write the first biographical play to star herself in it to basically portray herself as a strong, independent, liberal woman fighting against the absolutist tyranny of the ultramontane Jesuits, and the American audience eats it up and loves it 
despite the critics calling it the worst piece of crap, self-indulgent production of all time, basically, that doesn't matter for the American audience. They love big drama, even if it's based upon pure fiction. That's the American way. So despite the technology and the outfits, it really wasn't that much different in America in the 1850s versus the 2020s. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.